Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. Visit RCAT.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. This is Detailed, an original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. Welcome to Detailed. Joining me today are Robin Wilcox and Susan Barnes, two principals from Skylab Architecture here in my hometown of Portland, Oregon. Robin has extensive experience in a broad range of project types, including higher education, commercial, institutional, and multifamily residential. He excels at finding creative solutions to complex problems, leading coordination within the project team, and fostering a collaborative environment with users and teammates. Robin believes sustainable design strategies are critical to a successful project. He worked on one of the first higher education projects in the country to be certified LEED Gold, as well as recent projects at UW Bothell, LEED Gold, and Nike World Headquarters, LEED Platinum, prioritizing sustainability. Robin graduated from the University of Oregon with a Bachelor of Architecture degree. Susan joined the firm in 2012 and is the Director of Architecture. She brings her prior experience working on museums and integrated lab design to Skylab's portfolio of custom residential, multifamily, snow country hospitality, and creative office clients. She was the project director of Skylab's Nike World Headquarters Serena Williams Building, ensuring that each key stakeholder is heard and respected while finding solutions to maintain a refined, detailed design concept. As the Director of Architecture, she is passionate about timeless yet inspired architecture and detailing, sustainable use of quality materials, and making activated, accessible spaces. Susan graduated from the University of Michigan with a Master of Architecture degree. 
The project we are going to talk about today is the Serena Williams Building at Nike World Headquarters here in Beaverton, Oregon. The Serena Williams Building is the largest structure at Nike World Headquarters at more than 1 million square feet. The building establishes new links to the existing campus through restored wetlands, public plazas, and view corridors. The architecture was inspired by Nike's heritage while providing innovative workspaces, enabling designers to continue to imagine and deliver the future of sport. Anchored by a 10-story tower, the building marks the epicenter of campus for this visionary company. The Serena Williams Building is LEED Platinum Certified. Sustainable design features include energy-efficient mechanical systems, photovoltaic panels on the roofs, a rainwater capture and reuse system, regional and recycled materials, FSC-certified wood products, and individual building occupant controls of their environments. Serena Williams, the ultimate phenom warrior muse, is personified in the building's narrative via the samurai armor-inspired exterior and abstracted wing of the goddess Nike evident in the tripartite massing. Fun fact, the three wings of the building connected by the main tower are named Phenom, Warrior, and Muse. The building consists of four programmatic components, an underground parking garage and loading dock, a merchandising center for prototype retail spaces, integrated design studios for multiple product categories, and a 12-story tower with shared amenities for the entire campus. Ongoing additions, art branding installations, and concepts are part of the design intent. Future creative iterations are supported through original interior design. The tower combines two intertwined volumes, a nod to the company-forming handshake between the two founders of Nike, Bill Bowerman and Phil Knight. See our podcast landing page for this episode to read an extended description of the project at rcat.com slash podcast. I'm especially excited to talk about this building today, not only because I am a born and raised Oregonian, and as we all know, this is Nike country. Nike is headquartered here, but I'm also a bit of a self-professed Nike-holic which means there's way too many swooshes probably in my closet. But most importantly, I have this huge amount of respect for Serena Williams and and what she's accomplished in her career and the influence and role model she is for not just young women, especially young women, but for women in general. Um, Talk about crashing glass ceilings. I think that she's the epitome of that. Um, She's such a powerhouse. So let's talk about this project. How did the Serena Williams building come to be and kind of what drove your vision and process? Nike approached us with the program goals of bringing together all of their design teams together in one building. Previously, sort of before this phase one campus expansion, all of their design teams were spread across the older buildings both in the original campus and then kind of in the later 90s buildings. And so the goal that we were given was to be able to have all the designers on one floor in the building. And then in addition to that, they would have their support teams and staff above and below them on different kind of levels in the building. 
plus a whole, almost a, uh, a retail concept program, which is essentially a, uh, a retail mall that they use for mock-ups and for design collaboration spaces where they're testing out fixturing and product layouts and color integration. And so it's this really dynamic, programmatic mix of spaces. Uh, there's also four food service elements, uh, a significant cafeteria, and then uh, a rooftop restaurant and two additional cafes, plus a uh, tower, which they really wanted kind of an iconic element to signify kind of the center of campus and the Nike identity. And so there's a 180 foot tall tower as a part of the project. That they wanted centered right on the uh, iconic Ronaldo Field. And so it really is a landmark within their greater campus area. And then within that too, we did a lot of studies on really trying to integrate the design of those kind of workspace connections between designers and uh, product development, especially on that enormous scale. We, we spent a lot of time working with, with Nike and it, within our studio, trying to create collaborative spaces and, and studios that felt you were in a broader, bigger identity and still having a real sense of space within the building. The other kind of challenge with it or what we set out to do was to really capture an ethos of sport and movement and really celebrate both Nike's heritage and innovation. We were inspired by uh, Serena Williams and both the kind of warrior aspect um, and the strength that she brings to the game and also just the gracefulness that she has. So we really were trying to capture all that in the architecture of the building as well. Let's talk about the spaces in this building and some of the things that make this building unique. Sort of the core of the project is around 600,000 square feet of creative office space and support spaces for uh, design studios. There's around a 200,000 square foot consumer labs section, which is kind of these mock-up retail spaces where they can uh, set up entire stores. Like one one of the rooms is around 15,000 square feet in and of itself, purely for mock-up and design strategies for their uh, consumer direct teams. We also have like immersive rooms where they can do like wraparound visuals and do projections. And especially through COVID, they were really utilizing those rooms to communicate, you know, with their Asian and European team members um, and really set that up. The tower also holds what they call their, their footwear library and their color lab. And so they do a lot of sample testing of colors and product for both footwear and clothing products. And so there's always samples that the designers can go down and look and touch and feel and really work with um, in the kind of development of designs. So it's a very kind of interactive ability that they have, both being kind of heads down at their desk, but then also getting up into collaborative conference rooms and what they call fit rooms, where they're really actually testing product on models and working with size and colors and fits. The tower, Skylab really kind of brought a lot of thought to what could be in the tower. They really wanted it to be for all of Nike employees. And so they're very kind of public facing spaces 
from a kind of world-class lecture hall where designers or athletes can come and give a product launch or lecture to designers on a specific topic. Um, And then there is a kind of a multi-purpose room about that where they can either have celebratory dinners or product layouts and launches there. And then a rooftop uh, restaurant where almost all Nike employees can go. It's called the Wimbledon restaurant and it's based off of the theme of Wimbledon. It's got amazing, almost kind of 280 degree views of all of Beaverton from the West Hills. You can see Mount Hood poking over the West Hills there. There's a world-class tennis court in honor of Serena just outside the building too. So there's a really dynamic mix of, of spaces and uses of the building, both inside and outside. We also um, designed the building in the shape of kind of a, a wing and, and almost kind of like the uh, victory wing of, of Nike in that each office steps back kind of in terraces. So each floor of every office has access to an outdoor garden and roof terrace. And some of those are very kind of lush. We worked with place landscape architecture on the design of those roof gardens. And they're just really amazing oasis within the building itself to escape to and to get out and enjoy the connection to nature. Yeah, that um, connection from the people occupying the building to the outside and direct access to nature was really important. The building also, we have three wings that each have kind of a Y. So they're essentially like six uh, office bars and they step down from the north to the south. So the north wing is the tallest. The middle wing steps down a story. The south wing steps down a story and they step down towards the wetlands along the south side of the project, each with a green roof on top showing kind of the stormwater drainage, the idea of water moving towards the wetlands and filtering that water as it it moves that way. They had always kind of turned their back to it. There were a couple of bridges that went across on walkways. But what we were able to really do was submerge just this massive loading dock and fire access road below a beautiful roof garden terrace that then connected and stepped down into the wetlands. And so we were able to like reestablish a connection to the nature and to the employees' experience that previously had just been bare parking lots and kind of a rough terrain around the wetlands. So I, I really, I really love that. I, I was reading through some of the information you sent me. And one of the things that was in there was that this was a salmon safe campus. Yeah, obviously, you know, here being in the Pacific Northwest, protecting the the stormwater runoff going into those the wetlands and estuaries and all the way through the ecosystem. The criteria is to meet, you know, or exceed baseline lead standards of water flow from the site as previously, you know, kind of recorded. And we were, you know, working with Place Landscape and all of kind of our stormwater integration systems were able to meet that credit. So we're pretty proud that we took these surface parking lots and elevated and brought back stronger performance in the stormwater runoff in the design of the building and the landscape around the structures. So this is a quote, the art of Serena. Tell me about that. What is the art of Serena? 
Yeah, so when Serena was named for the, it was going to be named for the building, you know, we really were able to work with teams at Nike Branding and how to really infuse her influence and identity in the very public spaces. She very generously gave them a lot of her iconic outfits and trophies to be on display within the building. And so we were able to really kind of set up key locations that celebrated her iconic moments. For instance, there's really large murals in the cafeteria done by artists from all over the country, including Lady Pink, Jordan Moss, Kellyanna, who did just really unique images that we were infused onto these acoustic panels in the cafeteria. Nike was also able to commission a work by Jenny Sabin, which is just a beautiful fabric sculpture that hangs in one of the kind of double height spaces that has skylights above. And it's very kind of almost iconic of their fly knit product that they've developed and has a really beautiful presence in the project. And so anywhere there was kind of a place where we could celebrate Serena or Nike heritage, we worked with two artists at Nike, Todd Van Horn and, and Lizzie Russell, who then kind of came up with the art and actually did some of the, the image development for those locations. For instance, a small little waiting area outside of one of the cafeterias is kind of thought of as Serena's living room. And so there's some really great portraits of her family members hanging on the walls over a bench in those locations. I think it was maybe in the cafe. There are roses on the wall because that was her favorite flower. Yes, up in the the Wimbledon restaurant, the athletes are given white roses. And so that had become one of her favorite flowers. And so we did this tile mosaic on one of the back bar locations. And then in the main plaza, kind of the entry plaza where there's kind of the signature Serena in the signage, all of the flowers in that zone are white between white roses and just to kind of celebrate her love of white. Almost makes it fun to look around and see if like, is that something? I got to figure out what that is. Yeah, no, definitely. And for instance, one of the lobbies closest to the tennis court has a shopping cart hanging on the wall full of tennis balls. And that was what they used, you know, her father used to transport all their balls around when they lived in Compton. And so it's kind of an iconic moment as you come in one of the lobbies. So there's so many of these kind of unique art locations to discover as you're going through the building. And everything that Nike does for the building is very much well thought out and almost branded down to the level of the push buttons and the elevators have little Nike swooshes on them. And you'd appreciate even the fire smoke dampers. We were able to get custom labels with Nike graphics to indicate <laughs> indicate hidden fire smoke dampers under raised access floors. So everything is thought through down to the graphic design and, you know, everything laid out, color, theme, and brand and identity. I'm not surprised. Everybody knows the master of branding is Nike. I mean, especially if you live here in Oregon where they're headquartered, you just know that. But I love that level of detail. (laughs) You know, do it, do it. Go big or go home, right? Let's talk about the design a little bit. What were some of the challenges in the design for this building that most excited you? And what did you do to get there? 
it was a lot of the the code challenges. It was such a large building. The occupancy count for the building was significant. And so we had a a really amazing team working with uh, Code Unlimited here in Portland and the Washington County Building Services Group that, you know, was reviewing plans and really working with them in a collaborative way to analyze, you know, the original calculations for the million square foot of the building was thousands and thousands of people for exiting. And, you know, that was proving out to have massive implications on stair widths and seismic design and any number of kind of unusual issues, because uh, this is one of the tallest buildings in Washington County. So, you know, the high rise code definitely applied. And so we were, you know, had all these really creative ideas on massing and views and light and air, and then, you know, really trying to work with the county and keep it as safe as possible and as efficient as possible. And given Nike has such a like progressive and really wants, you know, this amazing building for their employees, we were able to kind of limit some of the um, occupancy counts because they knew they wouldn't overstaff the building or have too many visitors at any given time. And so the county was able to work with us and, and so we could have reasonable stair design and exiting paths and, and things like that. The structural system was another amazing uh, aspect of the project because there's also an underground parking lot that's about 50 feet below grade. To dig deeper into the structural aspects of this building, we also spoke with Ben John, structural engineer for the project under the engineering firm of record, Thornton Tomasetti. Ben is now a principal at WorkPoint Engineering in Culver City, California. The thing with the parking structure was, to a large degree, that it's subterranean in an area which is a pretty wet area, you know. So kind of making sure that it could withstand pretty decent hydrostatic loads. You have to ensure that the building weight is sufficient so that the building won't float away in the event of a higher water table. It's called buoyancy. And it's something that we always check for in these kind of conditions. Uh, I think in terms of the architecture, it was really trying to figure out a column grid that would work uh, for the parking and then trace up through the building and eventually become columns for the offices without having to do too many transfers. The transfers were obviously always a little bit deeper and heavier than people want to work with. So the more we can keep columns continuous, it's always the, the more beneficial. There's also significant seismic um, considerations and seismic joints in the building that both involved structural, architectural, and even the contractor Hoffman construction on means and methods on how to achieve them. For instance, there's a a significant span between one of the uh, wings of the building and the primary tower, and we wanted a clear plaza kind of walk through underneath the building. And so there's actually a massive steel tripod on the roof of the tower that hangs the corner of the tower. So the tower has one corner, which you would think a column would come down on. However, it would then interfere with a movement joint so we couldn't put a column there so you had an unsupported corner and the solution we came up with was to put a hanger that extended all the way to the roof and then it's cantilevered back via this tripod frame to supports inside the tower 
Now, the problem with that is that, you know, you're building the rest of the tower and it's deflecting at a certain rate as you build, you know, concrete is concrete and things kind of move as you build it. And then you're coming in later and you're supporting this one corner more rigidly through this steel tower. So coming up with a sequencing that allowed you to build a floor, predict an element of its deflection, and then build it into what you were doing with the tripod was the kind of sequencing that you really had to work with with the contractor to come up with so that you wouldn't allow one corner. This corner doesn't become too tight that it looks like it's lifted and it doesn't become too soft that it looks like it's it's drooping. So that was something that we needed to think of in the design process so that once it got into the into construction, it was actually buildable and feasible. One of the other design challenges we had was the two connectors on the project. There's one connector between the north and middle bars that spans about 60 feet. But the bigger challenge was between the middle bar and the south bar over the central plaza there, the south connector, which spans about 150 feet. And it actually connects both the third and fourth floors of both sides of those connections. And it's it's really thought of as a collaborative space. So it's not just a walkway. It actually has pinup rooms at either end. And then throughout the center of it, there are collaboration spaces for people to stop and work together, hang out, find a place away from their desk. There you have issues with movement joints and kind of coordinating it with the facade, especially when you have something as well finished as the, the facade you see it. You know, you need to be very tight with your coordination of your uh, movement joints, especially when you've got a 150 foot long bridge, essentially, that, that wants to expand and contract. And then it's attaching between two buildings that want to move separately to each other during a seismic event or just in terms of general shrinkage, et cetera. So allowing for that to happen without causing any kind of structural problems or any problems with the facade is always going to be tough. The connector is pinned on its north side, meaning it's it's connected rigidly on that side. And then it's let to move on the south side. So it actually overlaps the concrete structure about 10 feet and it's able to slide into the building on the south side in case of a seismic event. And then it has its own unique geometry. It's coming in at an angle into a building that walls are shingling and canted. So the seismic joints themselves became challenged in detailing and detailing cleanly and making sure that they both were where you wanted them to be and in the plan and where they made sense and then looked pulled together on the exterior of the building. We really weren't trying to express the seismic joint at all. So we we kind of did our best to hide that on the outside. The thing that I love about it is the framing itself is not just a conventional truss box. The trusses actually read as a series of sloped goalposts, if you like. Even if you think of this as like a very normal structure, and you're trying to span between these two bars, it's already a complicated analysis. You're essentially designing a bridge that's got to span that kind of distance. I think when you add in those complexities, that not only does the bridge got to work, but it's got to look in a certain way and it's got to interact with the bars with their own kind of uniqueness in certain ways. So I think when you see it now, it looks like it wants to be what it is, the structure as much as the architecture. You have to be very tight with your collaboration and your coordination to kind of get to that kind of form. Structural gymnastics, great for a Nike building. Um, 
Can you tell me about some of the products that you used on this building and and what directed you to some of those? We started the project in 2014 and design and documentation went through 2016. And at that time, if you all remember, the economy was booming and the hope was that to really expedite the construction schedule that we'd be able to utilize unitized curtain wall, both for the tower and for the horizontal office bars. Unfortunately, given the kind of supply and demand once we started construction, we had to really look at using a traditional frame wall system with metal panels but we still really wanted that look of a unitized curtain wall and kind of the banding of windows and kind of uniformity of the stacked wall system and expression of the floor plates. And so I worked with Arcadia and metal panel suppliers to really design it in such a way that it was it looked like unitized curtain wall and come up with a, a repeating system that could be efficiently constructed in field while giving us that really crisp, clean look. And two of the kind of interior products that we use that were new to a lot of people, but really became signature pieces in the design were the use of Gypsorb, the perforated sheetrock product. We liked it both for its acoustic componentry, but also we had this vision of it, for instance, in the U.S. Open cafeteria which was tennis-themed, that it almost looked like the dimples on the leather of a tennis racket. And the building has very dynamic geometries in terms of angles and almost kind of like overlapping leafs of the panelization of the building and ceilings. And so both the installer and the Gypsorb product reps and engineers, Ann Hoffman and us, got all together in... PCI's warehouse and did really intensive mock-ups to have every every party associated with it come together and give their their best ideas and best practices on how to execute some of the really complex geometries that we had both in the ceilings and the walls. And it turned out beautifully because when you're cutting at an angle through all these little circular perforations, they have to come back and patch and paste all of those little cuts so that it just looks perfectly seamless. And we thought that was a a great success and how that is both performing and and looks in in place. One of the other really interesting ones that we worked with, both with the county as a code element and for the visuals, was we worked with the Carl Stahl full-height web net as a guardrail in all the exit stairs. They frequently do it as just, you know, traditional 42-inch high guardrails system. But we were probably like second or third project in the United States where we were proposing to do it full height without, you know, stanchions and using their system of attaching to the stair treads. And both for the, the county who had never kind of analyzed it for some of the code requirements on fall protection and four-inch sphere passing through and push tests, how, how were they to analyze it? How were they to confirm that it was going to meet all the code requirements? And then the same for the installer. They were concerned about, again, the same meeting and deflection, but it turned out beautifully. Everyone signed off on it and the installation went 
really well. And we've seen so many photographs on Instagram now of people going into the, the stairwells and it's, it's almost kind of like a giant tennis net hanging as the guardrail going down all the stairs. And then we worked with the county too to be able to install different colored tennis balls into the net as a part of that wayfinding color combination that we were talking about in terms of the Phenom Warrior and Muse. So each wing has a signature color that goes along with that concept. And so each exit stair in each wing has different tennis balls hanging in the web net. I was feeling like, did I miss a whole piece of my education? I've never heard of this before, but then you said only a couple projects in the United States have done it. So, you know, I'll be going to Google that as soon as I yeah. have this call. We, we, we were able to convince them that if it can hold in, you know, zoo animals and tigers and bears, they, you know, that it would prevent someone from falling. Oh, you underestimate the creativity of humans. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> Let's talk about construction a little bit. It was really an integrated relationship with Hoffman Construction throughout the design phase and into construction. The project manager from Hoffman spent time in our office during design and had a had a desk there. And then Susan and I spent a, a lot of time and other people on our team out on the site, essentially co-located in the construction trailer. And there were a lot of talented people on the Hoffman side and then also with subcontractors. I kind of continually get amazed at how much sophistication and ability the subcontracting community brings to these projects. But one of the one of the challenges with this one was concrete structure, PT concrete structure, not a lot of finishes below it, like throughout the office space, the ceilings are exposed. So there was a high degree of coordination that had to happen early in the project. So we had to get everything kind of figured out for your ceiling plan prior to pouring the floor above. You don't want to be walking underneath where they have these exposed structural ceilings and you don't want to see steps and big structure underneath the green roof because obviously when you're below it, you're detached from what's going on above. Um, so you want to see the uniformity. So uh, how do you create a structure that's kind of uniform that's still able to carry the additional loads in those areas? Because you also don't want to oversize everything so that it works at the roof and then is inefficient everywhere else. So working on kind of grid schemes and beam schemes with the architect was pretty critical to that. So that kind of coordination on such a big scale and a building that construction that's moving pretty quick was pretty challenging. So, you know, that that's one of those things where it really does take everyone coming together to get everything overlaid. It was interesting too, in that the construction or design and construction, because given the length of time, technology was even evolving over the course of that period. And when we essentially were starting to pour decks, it was decided to make it a fully wireless building, for instance, as, as opposed to kind of a hardwired system. And so we were scrambling, trying to get a wireless layouts as they were pouring decks. So this is a lead platinum building. This building is comprised of and this seemed to me to be a really huge number, comprised of 20% recycled and regionally harvested and manufactured materials. Tell me about the sustainability of this building and some of the systems and products and different things you put in place to reach that goal. 
mechanically, all the office space is served by a raised raised floor system. So okay. air is brought in, you know, low down by where people are. And then the perimeter load mechanically was taken care of with the chilled sails. So we ended up with really efficient systems for the majority of the building. We were able to do rainwater harvesting and use rainwater for flushing toilets. We have green roofs and on-site water treatment as well. And then very energy efficient light fixtures and electrical systems. So all in all, our, our energy performance was really good on this project. And in addition to that, we have PV on the roof. We use PV to screen all the mechanical units because we knew that our roofs were like the fifth facade of this building. People are going to be up in the tower and they're going to be looking down. So the roofs and mechanical systems were all very organized in a spine. And the roof of that, that area is PV. I love that you you use PV to kind of hide the mechanical units. That's a genius. I was just in Boston visiting my son up on the roof deck, watching the sunset. You could see a shorter building next to us, the roof, and it was horrible. And I'm like, this is the worst view ever. You know, and so I love that you really thought about that, but used it effectively. Didn't just make it pretty, but actually found a way to solve the problem with other things that would help the building. Yeah, it was one of those like money-saving ideas that came up through the project because it wasn't originally that way. We originally had like a screen roof that wasn't PV on top of the mechanical units. And then during the design of the project, we switched that out with the PV and killed two birds with one stone. Another kind of significant lead point that we were able to achieve was the FSC certified wood credit. You know, there is a lot of beautiful use of woods in the building, both on a wood slat ceilings that give acoustic properties and also cabinetry and, and wood in the building. Nike also came to us with the directive to think about lead platinum plus. And so even we were able to achieve, you know, the lead actual credits, you know, we, we definitely thought about the building in such a way that what other kind of sustainable concepts could be utilized by employees in the building, but not necessarily, you know, an exactly credit. And so all of the food services have farm to table, organic food available to all employees. We also created a significant number of communicating stairs and all the fire exit stairs too are accessible to be used as moving back and forth between floors to kind of give that sense of energy and, and connectivity. And then just the, you know, changing the parking, surface parking lots back into natural landscapes was also, you know, kind of a significant achievement. There's a signature oak tree that was within one of the main parking lots on the site. And between two projects, we were able to create a really beautiful reflecting pond and a space where Nike now has yoga classes and is meant as a place for kind of repose and reflection for employees to take a break and get outside of the office too. So looking back on this project and your process and the solutions and the challenges you had to meet and the different ways you had to kind of configure things to get where you wanted to be, what lesson did this project bring to you? How much thought project architects or project managers need to bring to 
what you draw and like to what level you detail. Like a building like this, there's so much to document and so much to figure out and a limited time to do it. Like we had essentially 18 months from schematic design through permit documents, which was felt really fast and was really fast. So just being thoughtful about the scale of drawings that you're doing and what that means, especially on a building of this scale where the whole job was nine sets of drawings, you know, to cover all the trades, but the architectural set was three sets, like a third of that. You know, I think that there's like a really thoughtful way to go about you know, setting up how you're going to, besides just designing the project, how you're going to document and communicate the project for people to build. I think adding to what Robin's saying too, and the kind of the topic of specifications, the importance of a coordination tables between Revit and the specification writers is so important. For instance, on this project, we had around 45 glass types between exterior and interior glass partitions and guardrails and everything. And so it just became so key and important to have that coordination. I think the other aspect that, you know, was valuable lesson learned was just working with craftspeople, both in pre-construction and in the field. Robin and I had the really unique experience of working on site almost full time through the start of construction and then essentially moved our, our Skylab office into the building during COVID and construction. And so we had a really intimate communication with uh, on a daily basis around small details and large details. And so that was both fun as a learning experience in terms of construction, but also then how do we apply that into our next project in terms of documentation? Like what were those pieces and elements in our drawings that became a question in the field and how could we have clarified it? you know, to achieve that the same look in a more efficient manner. Okay, final question. What is your world domination statement? Personal or professional, doesn't have to be architecture related. What mark do you hope to leave on this world? Well, I, you know, this, I don't know if world domination really fits with my personality type. So <laughs> this one is, I don't know if it's, it actually qualifies, but, you know, I want to leave the things that I touch better than better than I found them. And with architecture, a lot of that is working on projects and being involved with work that builds community and kind of amplifies people's experiences of a place or their life or their place in it. So it's really like just, I get a lot of enjoyment out of being involved in projects like that, that I can really feel proud of at the end of. Some of the smallest things make the biggest ripples. Yeah. For me, total world domination isn't, it, it isn't a goal you're going to ever arrive at. It's just a goal you're reaching for. What can I do better every day? How about you, Susan? I, I think Robin and I have been working together for too long because I think my answer is fairly similar. You know, it, just wanting to continue to work on these kind of almost once in a lifetime projects that we're able to, you know, bring sense of pride and you know, achievement to and look back on and, and hope people enjoy the space and their life in those buildings and just, you know, have fun. We, I think we survived the Serena project by having a team that loved to laugh 
And so continuing to work that way and continuing to strive for amazing projects. Susan, Robin, thank you so much for being with me today. It was a pleasure. This building is, you guys are in town, so don't be surprised if you don't get a call from me saying, can you get me in the building to look around? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, anytime. Come by our studio too. Okay, I would love to do that. I would love to come see your place. Maybe I'll come down for lunch one day. Yeah, you definitely would love to. Um, It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around rcat.com. For over 30 years, RCAT has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try RCAT and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.